Hi, I'm Katie Kramer, President and CEO of the Betcher Foundation. Welcome to Colorado Leadership Stories, where we talk to everyday, courageous leaders who have made transformational impacts in their communities and are building a better state for everyone. You'll hear from leaders and organizations and communities throughout the state as we explore the idea that leadership is an activity that anyone can do. Today we're talking with Dana Crawford, a doer and difference maker who was best described as a historical preservationist and a civic entrepreneur. A Colorado icon, Dana is known for helping to build and revitalize downtown Denver in a career that spans more than seven decades. Since the 1960s, Dana has led the redevelopment of more than 800,000 acres of downtown Denver with some of her most notable projects, including Larimer Square, Oxford Hotel, and more recently Union Station. In addition to her business contributions, Dana has been an influencer and leader in the nonprofit and philanthropic sectors, serving on too many boards to count or to mention here, but perhaps most notably in her three decades plus on the Denver Downtown Denver Partnership Board. Dana is known for her energy, eye for detail, and vision to build community and see things for what they can be. Today, at age 92, Dana joins us from her loft in downtown Denver and we couldn't be more ecstatic to be here. Dana, thank you for welcoming us, and we can't wait to talk to you and have you tell your Colorado leadership story. Well, thank you so much for being here, and, um, you know, it's a busy time of year around the holidays, but I hope I can answer your questions in a manner that would make your listeners happy, too. Well, we're glad to be here. So let's start at the beginning. We know you grew up in Salina, Kansas, with an early interest in history and heritage. What do you think inspired that interest? Well, in the summer times, I left Kansas with my mother, and we went to Ohio. And there we visited the uh, Dana Farm, because I am named for my, my mother's maiden name. And her name was Josephine Dana. And so then I came along boy or girl, I was going to be a Dana. You would eventually attend the University of Kansas and enroll in the business management program at Harvard Radcliffe. But prior to that, you graduated from Monticello, a women's college during a time when education wasn't prioritized for women as much. What did you take away from that experience? Well, um, you know, it's funny. We, um, that school was quite an old school and it was a junior college, a two-year college for women, and and we called it Monticello because I guess we didn't know that the proper name was Monticello, but later on I found out. And uh, it was important because we were given a lot of responsibilities in the school and um, had to make a lot of important decisions, and also they had a very fine academic program, so I was able to enjoy that pro- that two years very much. What did you study when you were at the various universities? I studied or tried to study about being a teacher because uh, I was very influenced by my mother's wishes. And she said, you know, in that day and age, why you were a teacher or you were a nurse or a secretary. And so I thought I'd go to the School of Education. And I have to confess, I absolutely hated it. And, And I cut classes all the time. And I finally went to the teacher and I said, the professor, and I said, I don't know whether you've noticed or not, but I cut your classes all the time because 
I'm just not inspired. And he said, oh, well, I'm not either. <laughs> and uh, he said, um, it, it's the graduate courses that I really like to teach. And I said, well, I don't know whether I'll still be around it for graduate school, but thank you very much for your help, and I'll try to do well on my tests. <laughs> what brought you to Denver and Colorado? I think you moved here in 1954. And maybe tell us a story about what you remember about it at that time and what brought you here. Well, I had been planning to go live in Boston. And I was very influenced by the year that I spent in Boston with the Radcliffe Harvard crowd. But the gal I was going to live with wasn't available then at the last minute. So I was dating a guy from Denver. And so I came out here and started looking for a job. And I knew I wanted to go into public relations because I had worked at the Museum of Science in Boston for about six weeks uh, in the public relations department. And I, I finally I found, you know, what, what a major in English lit can do, and that's write and talk, and it turned out to be a, a good match. Wonderful. What do you remember about Denver and Colorado from when you first moved here in 1954? Well, it was completely obvious that there was very little going on in terms of preservation. And I had become really impressed with the whole idea when I was in Boston. So I kept kind of trying to find it. And um, the Denver Club had just been torn down, one of the very best buildings in downtown. And I finally figured out that one of the reasons said the... Uh, you know, the, the uh, foundation of the community and the leadership of the community didn't have any sense of preservation it was because, you know, we didn't, as a town, we, we didn't get started until 1858. And so some of them, you know, could remember when all these buildings were being built. And so they didn't want to be thinking of themselves as old. So, you know, that was an obvious stumbling block. But it turned out that San Antonio was doing a fabulous job at that time. And I took a whole group of people down to San Antonio uh, for them. They were doing a big fundraiser down there. And um, the, the Texas women have a fascinating way of being extremely generous and hospitable. And so we were just dazzled by the manner in which we were treated. And when we came home on the airplane, we were a different group. We were ready to go. That's a great story. Let's talk about some of the highlights from your career. You initiated a concept of urban renewal that has been described as pioneering and first of its kind in the United States with Larimer Square. And at that time, urban renewal often meant bulldozing entire city blocks, not to mention the buildings. Talk about your philosophy and where that vision came from Larimer Square. Well, I couldn't see the logic of tearing down perfectly wonderful buildings, especially buildings that held stories to tell about the past of a, a community. But Denver was such a new town. You know, the city fathers weren't really thinking about it that way. And so they signed up right away for Urban Renewal, which was a very good program, especially for the bankers. And I found out later on that you, you really need to find out about the bankers in every town. In every town that I went and asked them for anything, they always said no. <laughs> and But later on, they liked me better, and they said no, thank you. Oh. 
And so, you know, things improved. Mm-hmm. Yes, but Denver was a, first of all, pretty town. Of course, it's just a gorgeous state. And particular buildings that were slated for demolition seemed to be among the most handsome. And I, I just couldn't get the, the uh, logic of it. So I got to thinking about what I learned in New England, and I just decided that we could do the same thing here and care about the uh, more recent past as the West had developed. So it, it's just got to be a burning desire. How did you get people to come around to your way of thinking about that? Well, actually, there were some people, you know, that had had kind of the same experience that I'd had growing up in the Middle West and then going east to school. And, and they happened to be really good friends. And I made a little model of Larimer Square that was sitting in my dining room on Humboldt Street. And Tom Congdon, the good friend, came in and he said, I always said, Tom, that was a fatal question, but he said, what's this? And then I explained to him what the concept was, and he said, I like it, let's do it. And he had lots of resources, so that made a big difference. Yep. It's been over 60 years since that project. Um, you helped save one of the oldest blocks in Denver. Yeah. What led you to the town of Trinidad in southern Colorado and the preservation efforts there? I like to go around Colorado and to some of the small rural communities and, and see if I can pick up on the story of what has happened there through the buildings. And many of them, particularly Trinidad, they'd gone through a period of such poverty they couldn't afford to tear their buildings down. So they had this great resource of beautiful, wonderful buildings that had been designed by some of the best architects we had of that era, the Rapp brothers. And so, and then of course I noticed the brick streets, which are all over the place and they all say Trinidad. And it's just a, at one time it was a community of 30,000 people and now it's 10. And I know you've been there because the Betcher Foundation has done so many great things there. But um, I, well, I just fell in love with the town. And so I've been trying to help out there uh, for a number of years. Well, it's um, remarkable, the transformation that's happened there in Trinidad with the Space to Create project. And as you mentioned, Betcher wasn't involved with that, along with many others. That is affordable housing and mixed-use commercial space. So I'm curious, how has that revitalization impacted that community of 10,000? Well, tremendously, because... The space to create is is on Main Street. It's right downtown. It provides space for meetings there. And more importantly, it provides spaces for people of of artistic and creative nature to live there if they fall into the right uh, income category, which has been one of the most difficult things about it because even... um, I mean, the income categories that were established were really too difficult to meet. But um, somehow or another, we stretched, or I should say unstretched, to to work it out so that ultimately the buildings are filled with people that can't afford to be much of any place else. And now here they are right downtown. And that's just a, a very cool thing that the... Uh, 
foundation community when they went around and asked everybody all over what these small towns needed. Everybody said, well, we need places where our kids will want to come home when they grow up, and uh, they'll want to bring their families back here, and, and we'll have things to do and things to be proud of. So, and actually the foundation community chose Trinidad as the number one town to experiment in the, with this theory. And it's turned out beautifully. I'm wondering if there's any other lessons that you can think of from that project and what's happened there that you think are translatable to other communities in the state. Well, it's very interesting. I think characteristics uh, in small towns are often very similar. First of all, gossip is just a rampant. And probably more interesting in Trinidad because it was developed during the mining days, and at that time it was a town of 30,000 people, and many of them were from Sicily and uh, Lebanon and many places in Europe, and because at that particular moment there was a big depression going on, and all those people heard about jobs in Colorado, and out they came. So, and now the third and fourth generations are there. And they've forgotten what they're arguing about, but they're still arguing. <laughs> the holidays are right around the corner, Dana, and I understand you were instrumental in creating Denver's Parade of Lights. Tell me that story. Well, you had mentioned that I was involved with the Denver Partnership for a good many years, still am. There was a tradition of a big parade, day, daytime parade, mm-hmm. and kind of influenced somewhat by the Macy Parade. And I mean, we had a couple of big floats and so But we got so we couldn't afford to put it on. For years, we didn't put it on. So Bob Rhodes, who was the uh, display guy at the May Company at the time, and I came up with the idea of, well, you know, if we did a, a, a parade of lights at night, then that would be easy to do these floats because we could use chicken wire and Christmas lights and tell stories that way. So that's what we did. And they're still doing that with the Parade of Lights, Channel 9. And, you know, so many people came out at night and it was so pretty downtown and it it became a very uh, special occasion. Well, it's a wonderful holiday tradition in our community, to be sure. Dana, talk about some of the biggest challenges and opportunities that you see facing preservation in the city of Denver currently. What would those be? Well, uh, when you talk about a challenge, almost every challenge is an opportunity. And we still have neighborhoods like the Five Points neighborhood, for example, which still has a good many really uh, nice and important buildings, but has been pretty much ignored. My little brief mention of the bankers always saying no. Bankers aren't enthusiastic about preservation although they're more enthusiastic than they used to be, but we have a lot of things that still need to be done. And uh, mostly I think it's a, uh, a belief system that everybody has to understand that preservation can be a very, very good and a very, very strong part of rebuilding a community or building a community. And here we're still really building this community and the emphasis which we think everybody should be devoted to is community because if people can learn to work together productively and creatively, 
One, they have a much better time of life. And secondly, the results are just terrific. So other than five points, are there a couple other things that you have your eye on that you think would be great opportunities? Well, the farther north you go, and this has been being demonstrated in um, in the um, areas, uh, you know, around the, the uh, railroad tracks. I, I was brought up thinking that people who lived on the wrong side of the tracks were not, you know, very attractive or very smart or anything, all wrong. So I think that there are a lot of areas, and, you know, when I moved into my loft here, which used to be a flour mill, why the whole area that you see out the windows here to the south was, you know, the, the, the railroads have been pulled up and it was just empty. And now, 20-some years later, um, it's just like a new city. I wish I'd done a time camera uh, that I could have watched it come up so fast. But but there, there are places like that. And then um, we have such a serious need for additional housing. And not not fancy housing, but housing that people can afford. That is possible, and it's being done in a number of other communities. I had a meeting yesterday with some people that were talking about cottages that are built um, closer together and much more efficiently and affordably. Dana, what advice would you give to future preservationists? Well, if you get an opportunity to um, get a large quantity of patience and persistence, and there are a whole bunch of words that add up to preservation, then you should get large doses of those because it's the development business that a lot of people are involved with from new buildings is a very, very demanding, and it's kind of like juggling because you have to be prepared to drop the ball one day. And if you drop one ball, it's kind of bad, but if you drop one or two balls, it's really bad. And if you drop three balls, you're over. Tell us the story of we're in this space and you were starting to chat about it a little when we were getting set up today. But tell us about the story of this flour mill and what it, what it took to be this incredible place that it is now. Well, I suppose that being from Kansas was sort of part of it because... Uh, you know, we have a lot of flour mills in Kansas. And when I first came here, I saw this building. And, and he, it was really almost impossible to get into it at that time because of the way the roads were, et cetera. And, um, you know, and other people that are kind of conscious to architecture and so forth were always saying, what do you know about that building, Dana? And um, I kept saying, I don't know anything about it except I was. <laughs> I want it. I want it desperately. And I said, if you hear anything about it, why, let me know. Well, finally, someone who owned the building, and I got in the car, and I mean, he was in Eaton, Colorado. Uh-huh. And I drove up there, and I know the car was shaking because I was shaking. And I, I t- talked to him about, would he give me an option to buy this building? And he said, well... There have been several people who have worked on that building, and he said, maybe you're just crazy enough to do it. <laughs> and, um, you know, I thought, oh, well, it turned out it was really difficult. But 
uh, he gave me uh, several extensions on my option. And so he gets points in heaven. But um, I, you know, I worked with an architect and and we, we planned how we were going to handle the building. And, and then I had to do pre-sales. And interestingly enough, you know, it's, it's right on the railroad track. So when I had people come in to wanted to look at the building, which I had advertised, I would say, now there's just one thing. Do you like trains? <laughs> and if they said no, I said, you know, you really shouldn't. You just shouldn't stay around here. But if you do like trains, you should definitely see the building. So, But a lot of people like trains. So, you know, once again, the, all those sort of patterns that we think are stuck aren't necessarily true. So at any rate, um, we were able to pre-sell most of the lofts, and, and um, I was even able to get some financing. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember um, I, had t- I have four sons, and I had two of them sitting in here one day when the trains went by and went, a huge crash. And uh, Peter turned to his younger brother and said, see, they're right. She's really lost it this time. <laughs> but, no, and it, you know, it, it's been a great place to live, and um, it's been a very big success financially, and, um, and you know, other people around the country are, are looking at flower mills, and, and you know, it, it's, it's rough and ready, but, uh, and it was completely graffitied completely graffiti because kids had been living here and not doing anything particularly safe. But, you know, we it, it, it's been a wonderful place for me to live. I've lived here longer than I've ever lived any place. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really cool. It's fun to see it in the inside, have it being a Colorado kid and driving by all the time. I was always curious. So it's very fun. Dana, thinking about all your accomplishments and projects that you've been part of, it's important to note that you really have been a pioneer of sorts, being a a woman in a male-dominated industry. I I bet there were many times that you were maybe the only woman in in the room. What was that like, and what would be your advice for women in that position today? First of all, I'd never got kind of carried away with the uh, big um, discussion about women. I always just said, I thought of myself as a person. And um, that seemed to kind of calm everybody down. And so I just didn't get hung up with that. And therefore, um, you know, and I had plenty of occasions when things were really, really humorous. And, you know, somebody of great power would be sitting next to me and he'd pick up his chair and plop it down sideways and turn his back to me. And I just thought, you know, that's his life, poor thing. You know, um, it's, just, it's just no big deal. Are there some mentors and leaders that you admire that you've tried to emulate or they inspired you? Well, there are a lot in the preservation field, you know, and many, too, well, too numerous to mention, but uh, one of the great leaders in uh, community building was Jane Jacobs, and um, I was I was speaking to a group of students up at um, the University of Colorado, older campus when when she died, and I I said 
because she was kind of the that, that book that she wrote was kind of a Bible for a lot of us. Well, I was just horrified to determine that a lot of these kids have never heard of her. And um, that was a lesson. But, um, but I, you know, I did talk to the uh, department, and now they've heard of her. That's great. Yeah. At the Betcher Foundation, our mission is to connect and build up Colorado's doers and difference makers. When did you realize that you were a doer and a difference maker? Well, you know, that expression, I always felt like I got, um, I got fascinated with projects that I could visualize uh, what would happen. And if I got the chance to do them, and there were a lot I didn't get the chance to do, fortunately, I suppose, because I, I probably would have crumped long ago. But really the, the most impactful project that I've been involved with was the Denver Union Station. Mm. Uh, and it was slated to be torn down at one time. Right. I remember that. Almost every building that I've ever worked on has been slated to be torn down at some time. Yeah. That was like waving a flag at Dana. And um, I, I went into Pueblo one time, and they said, now this building is going to be turned down. And I said, oh, you should never have told me that. But it will never be torn down because we went through city council. My right. city council. And uh, I'm not going to be involved with that building, but it can't be torn down because it's been voted through a city council. So, right, one way or another, you can save them. Well, you, <laughs> I think you've had great influence on so many. I'm wondering if you can tell us the Union Station story, a little bit about how that, what was your hand in that? And because it's just tr been transformational for this side of town. Yeah, well, that's true. Well, I always thought it was a handsome building, mm -hmm. and not, I didn't realize that it had emerged over a series of years and um, happenings uh, that were related to transportation. But um, when we were all kind of beginning to really concentrate on that building, and Wellington Webb was mayor, and um, I was already involved with the Oxford Hotel and, um, and with uh, Walter Eisenberg, who was head of Sage Hospitality, and I, I said to him one time that the building was office space upstairs, and I said, you know what they're talking about with the uh, Union Station, and he said, well, yeah, to some extent. I said, well, what would you think about putting a hotel there? He said, well, let's go look at it. So we went over, and we went through the building floor by floor by floor, and up underneath the roof line, there are these rooms that have big beams that are, I mean, they're just so gutsy and marvelous. And he got it right away. He said, oh, this is going to be fantastic. And I said, well, we can make it happen. So yeah, I'll never forget when we were walking back. It's just a little short walk from the Union Station to the Oxford Hotel. Walter walked backwards and just looked at the hotel. I mean, at the, at the Union Station. And he was so fired up about it. And then we were able to get a lot of people involved. And we were in a competition. And we went to meeting after meeting after meeting with the board of the Regional Transportation District. And finally, on the 22nd of December, I can't remember just which year it was, but I can just remember just sitting there wanting to make, have them make up their minds once and for all about something. And they made up their minds, and they chose us. And so 
we skipped back to the Oxford Hotel, <laughs> to the um, uh, cruise room, and we were having a really good, good old celebration. So, and then then we had to do it in a hurry, and um, so we had many meetings, and I got have a voice in um, just about everything we did. So, so it was nice. Would you say that that's what you're most proud of when you think about all the projects? Or are there other ones that you well are most proud of? Well, I always say that the project I'm most proud of is my four sons. Oh. Um, but, you know, and I suppose professionally, the one I'm most excited about is the next one. And um, and I guess that's probably uh, in Trinidad. Well, it, it's been amazing. Your fingerprints are so many places. Those closest to you sometimes describe you as a perpetual optimist. Where does that come from? And have you passed that down to your sons? I don't know the answer to that about, about the passing it down. But, you know, people want to know, how did I get it done? And, and I said, well, I don't think you can really get anything done unless you learn how to be a nice nag. And I said, I, I just nag at people and nag at them and nag at them until... It begins to turn and go the direction of my vision. I love that. A nice nag. I'm going to tell my kids that. <laughs> I have two boys, too. I have boys, too. Dana, we are at the concluding our time, and this is our lightning round questions. Okay. okay. So, first of all, what is your favorite Colorado hobby? Well, it's touring small towns mm-hmm. and looking for important needs that are just there screaming for help. And there are a lot of them. I mean, just, just a signage in a little town can be horrible and be corrected and just make a huge difference. It's not necessarily, it's a, it can be a lot of little things, but big things really make it happen. Suspect what you're going to say to this next one, but I may be surprised. Uh, what is your favorite Colorado landmark? Well, it it changes, but right now it's um, Fisher's Peak, which is a mountain uh, that was at one time a um, volcano. Mm-hmm. Um, many of our mountains here are originally volcanoes. A lot of people don't know that. But um, I have a house in Trinidad that looks out over Fisher's Peak, and the lights change, the lights change, and you can see the rest of the downtown, little downtown, and and it's magic. Okay, what superhero do you most identify with? Well, we kind of answered that. Um, I, I suppose um, Jane Jacobs. Mm-hmm. I wish I wish it were as impactful as she was, and how yeah, I mean, her you know her book and her story is just it's just one woman against New York City and some of the biggest, strongest developers that ever came down the pike, and she got them. Awesome. Okay, what are you currently binging? Meaning, are you loving a show right now, or are you listening to something or reading a book that uh, you're really enjoying right now? I'm reading a book about uh, the Argo Mine in uh, Idaho Springs, and how it was built, and uh, it's a fascinating story with uh, many starts and stops. But and 
for watching. I'm, I'm, I've been watching uh, Gunsmoke a lot because uh, I had the fortune to meet uh, Kevin Costner not very long ago, and I want to get him to uh, Trinidad and uh, wow. be involved with some of the things that we're doing there. And right now what we're doing in Trinidad is selling bricks, huh. uh, the idea of symbolic bricks from uh, the theater there, which is... Um, Actually, you all have helped us with that, too. Thank you very much. And um, we'll, we'll probably be around with our hats in our hands again, but it's, um, it's an exciting idea that you can have a lot of people this time of year, especially, that, and we have little, little tiny bricks that say Trinidad like they do on the streets. And um, so, you know, we, we're just encouraging everybody in town to ask for a brick in their stocking. I love it. That's great. Well, Dana, thank you so much for the time today and inviting us into your home to hear some of the stories. We are grateful for your leadership in this community. It's You're just a legend. And so chance to have a, to sit down with you and, and hear some of those stories has been really fun. Thank you. Thank you for joining Colorado Leadership Stories, where we hope to inspire the next generation of Colorado community builders, doers, and difference makers. Colorado Leadership Stories is presented by the Betcher Foundation. The Betcher Foundation supports Colorado by empowering leaders and communities with tools to tackle challenges and pursue opportunities, building a better state for everyone. With an 85 plus year legacy of giving back, we're committed to amplifying our impact for future generations. That's the spirit of Betcher.